Let's read together. And uh, for those of you that are new, those of you that are watching online, we are in a series called The Seven Vices and Virtues. And uh, I'm doing the seven virtues, and the rest of the staff are doing the, sorry, I'm doing the seven vices, and the rest of the staff are doing the seven virtues. And I just want to also let you know that Pastor David Curry, a former pastor, is going to be with us next Sunday morning, and uh, we always enjoy when he comes. So let's read together. I'm reading the blue, and you're going to read the black, and this is what it says. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Eberzite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. I always love hearing people read the names of the Bible, because then I don't feel quite as dumb. (laughs) You did very well. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the living Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the, the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, who abides in us, who helps us to apply the things that you have afforded for us in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us again this morning, that you would give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, hearts to understand, minds to comprehend, and as we leave this place, Lord, to live out tangibly what it means to be Christ followers. We pray today for those that are hurting and grieving. We think today of the Santerre family. We celebrate that Kathy is in the presence of Jesus. And Lord, whatever it is that she's doing today, we know this, that she is alive, she is healthy, and she is whole. And this is the hope of all the church. This is the hope of every believer. But Lord, for those that remain, we grieve, we hurt, we mourn. And so we know that you're the God of all comfort, and all comfort is God's comfort, no matter who gives it or who receives it. May we experience, may the family particularly today, experience your comfort in Christ's name and for his name's sake. Amen. Why don't you be seated, and let's get started. And I've entitled this message, The Green-Eyed Monster. It's about envy. Now, here's a question. How well... Do we know the Bible? How well do we know the Bible? And secondly, 
ironically, is how well do we know Shakespeare? How well do we know the Bible? How well do we know Shakespeare? Now, I'm going to give you a little test. And to see which ones, which, if you recognize these as being from Shakespeare, or these sayings freeing from the Bible. All right? Now, the first one is this. To thine own self be true. How many says it's Shakespeare? How many says it's the Bible? You did very good. It is Shakespeare. Let go hand in hand, not one before another. Shakespeare? The Bible. You're wrong. It's Shakespeare. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Shakespeare? The Bible. You'd be right. Out of the mouths of babes. Shakespeare? The Bible. The Shakespeare people are wrong. It's the Bible. Condemn the fault and not the actor of. Shakespeare. The Bible? The Shakespeare people have it. Put a knife to thy throat if thou be a man given to appetite. Shakespeare. The Bible. The Bible people have it. It is a wise father that knows his own child. Shakespeare. I see that hand. The Bible. You'd be... Wrong. It's Shakespeare. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. Shakespeare? Come on, Shakespeare. Don't be ashamed. The Bible. It is the Bible. The truth shall make you free. Shakespeare? The Bible. You'd be right. I escaped by the skin of my teeth. Shakespeare. The Bible? The Bibles have it. Now, ladies, this is not a statement that you should endorse, but I'm going to use it. Men of few words are the best men. You're a bad lot. (laughs) Shakespeare. The Bible? You want it to be the Bible, don't you? (laughs) I know, I know. You're a messed up lot. It is Shakespeare. Neither a borrower nor lender be. Shakespeare? The Bible. Shakespeare. Okay, I'm going to give you this one, okay? For many are called, but few are chosen. Shakespeare, do not raise your hand. (laughs) The Bible, very good, very good. Now, what's interesting is, so how did you do? You do well? So I've been looking at this thing. You're wondering why I'm talking about Shakespeare. But here are some Shakespearean popular sayings that most of us probably don't even know where they come from. Here they are. An eyesore. Apple of her eye, as white as the driven snow, bated breath. 
budge an inch, dead as a doornail. I don't understand that at all. Do will have his day, eaten out of house or home, for goodness sake. Foregone conclusion, in my heart of hearts, into thin air, it smells to heaven. Knock, knock, who's there, comes from Shakespeare. Man of steel, not Superman, Shakespeare apparently. Neither rhyme nor reason. Pomp and circumstance, bad, strange bedfellows, the be-all and the end-all. The game is up. To be. Very good. Too much of a good thing? Shakespeare. What the dickens? Shakespeare. What's done? is done. And the green-eyed monster comes from Shakespeare. And he uses it to talk about jealousy, really, in The Merchant of Venice and in another place. Uh, One source defined the green-eyed monster as being jealousy personified. But we're going to use it today, and we're going to learn today that envy and jealousy are not the same things. So we want to talk about three things. First of all, we want to talk about the epitome of envy. And then we want to talk about uh, what envy actually is. And then finally, we want to kind of offer some correctives, what we can do to deal with our own envy. So let's talk about the epitome of envy. And of course, when we read our text in Judges chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, we discover there that the, the... Uh, The text is more about the reason for envy rather than the result of envy. And the biblical picture, of course, of the epitome of envy is the picture of Gideon, who is going to be a judge, who is going to deliver uh, the people of Israel out of the hand of the Midians. The picture, the epitome of envy is the picture of Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press. Now the question, the obvious question is, what in the world is Gideon doing threshing wheat or beating wheat in a wine press? Why would anybody beat wheat or thresh wheat in a wine press? And here's the reason. So that the Midianites could not and would not take it from them. Now, it wasn't that the Midianites didn't have enough And if they really wanted to, and God allowed them to do so, the Midianites would have been able to crush and destroy Israel. But that's not what they wanted to do. They did not, they did, uh, they just didn't want Israel to have anything, including the essentials of life, food, safety, and personal security. And here's the other thing about the Midianites, and about envy. And this is important. The Midianites just didn't want to wipe out Israel. The Midianites wanted to see them tortured in the process. 
And envy doesn't just not want people to have something we have or don't have. Envy not only wants the world to burn, but envy wants to watch the world burn. There's a story, a parable actually, of an envious man and a greedy man who met a king. And the king said to both of them, he said, one of you may ask whatever you want of me and I will give it to you. But, here's the caveat, here's the qualifier. Whatever I give to one of you, the other person gets twice as much. So this put the envious man and the grievous and, and the greedy man into a bit of a quandary. Because the envious man didn't want the greedy man to have anything he didn't have or have more than he had. And the greedy guy wanted it all. And so the greedy guy prevails upon the envious guy to make his first choice. To pick first. And the envious guy said to the king, here's what I want. I want you to pluck out one of my eyes. Which meant that his opponent had both his eyes plucked out. That's the epitome of envy. That's envy carried to the extreme. Envy, Dorothy uh, Sayers says, begins by asking plausibly, why should I not enjoy what others enjoy? And it ends by demanding, why should others enjoy what I may not Envy, envy is wanting to see someone who we perceive, who we perceive as being above us or better off than us, not only brought low and not only brought down to our level, but lower than us, hopefully. So what is envy? What does it look like? What does it act like? How do we detect envy? Well, the first thing is that we need to talk about what envy is not. Now, envy is not synonymous with jealousy. I know that we use the words jealousy and envy sort of interchangeably, but they're not the same. Envy does not want others to have what I do not have. You get that? Envy does not want others to have what I do not have. That's envy. And jealousy does not want others to get what I have. That's the difference. Now, the other thing we need to understand is not all jealousy is negative. There is such a thing as positive jealousy. There is a negative side to jealousy, and there is a positive side to jealousy. For example, if somebody comes along and tries to flirt with my wife, I'm going to be jealous of our marriage and there's going to be problems because I am protecting our relationship, our marriage from foreign intruders. That's holy jealousy. The Bible says that God is a holy God, but he is also a jealous God. It means simply this, 
It means that God is not prepared to give to somebody else or something else that which belongs to him. He will not share his glory with another. I heard Oprah Winfrey once say a couple of years ago that she could never ever worship a God who is a jealous God. Now, she misunderstood what the Bible means by the fact that God is a jealous God. When we say God is jealous, that God is jealous means that he is jealous for our love, for our worship, and for our heart. And so, just as there is such a thing as holy indignation, holy anger, we should have holy indignation against racism and this racket that we're seeing in in Virginia, I never thought I would live long enough that I would see neo-Nazism on the rise. I was reading the uh, news feeds yesterday and there was a man about my age dressed in a black t-shirt and they showed the back of him and on the entire width and length of his t-shirt there was a quote by Adolf Hitler. I never thought I would live long enough to see somebody with the audacity to quote Adolf Hitler in public. We should have holy indignation about injustices and about inequality. There is such a thing as holy indignation. But there's also such a thing as holy jealousy. Here's the problem. When positive and holy jealousy goes wrong in the human experience, when anxious suspicion arises and jealousy becomes a fear that someone is going to take what is ours by right, and all of a sudden positive and holy jealousy degenerates into a vice. Do you ever hear the expression, knock on wood? Have you ever heard the expression, knock on wood? Thank you, thank you. Do you know where it comes from? I didn't know this. It comes from Greek mythology. I'm serious. Listen to this. The Greek gods were finite and they could be competed against. All right? And the Greeks warned, whatever excels, the gods will disable. So the lightning of the gods would strike the tallest trees, it would strike the largest animals, the highest buildings, the most prosperous person. And the ancient way of avoiding the envy of the gods, that somebody might actually have something better than them or more than them, was if a person said something boastful or something braggadocious, they would say, knock on wood. And that would dispel the fury of the gods. Don't ask me why. I have no idea. So back to our question. What is envy? Now, not that any of us in this room need definitions of envy because we are our own definitions. But here's a couple. A feeling of discontent or covetousness with regard to another's advantages, success, possessions, etc. Or, as Thomas Aquinas said, that envy is sorrow at another's good. 
In other words, envy is the pain at or over another's prosperity. And usually it's our pain over somebody else's prosperity. In other words, envy is tinged with resentment that it's going better with somebody else than it is with us. And it gnaws at us. It drives us crazy that somebody else, somebody usually that we're not fond of is doing better than we are. Or somebody we think that doesn't deserve it as much as we do, that somebody is actually more well off than us. And it gnaws at us. Harold Coffin said, envy is the art of counting your neighbor's blessings instead of your own. Envy is all about what we do not have, and other people do. Someone wrote, few are able to suppress in themselves a secret satisfaction at the misfortune of their friends. Let me read it again. Few are able to suppress in themselves a secret satisfaction at the misfortune of their friends. What did Emily Dickinson say? Admiration always masks envy. I think she might have been a little cynical. But the question is then, what masks envy? And it would be admiration. But what we find appalling is when envy becomes blatant and it's no longer masked. Let me tell you a story. When I was around 18 or 19 years old, I worked at the mine in my hometown and made pretty good money. And one of the things that every young man wants to do when they're not thinking is they want to buy a car. Now, there's a background to the story that my mom is one of 13 um, siblings, 14 siblings. She has thir- sorry, 14. She has 13 siblings. And there are three sets of twins in my mother's family, of which my mom and my aunt are a twin. Now, I didn't know this, but apparently there was a little bit of competition between my mom and her twin sister. My, twins, my, mom, my aunt that I'm talking about, my mom's twin sister, had one boy who was about two years older than I am, and we were like brothers. And, um, but there was a competition, apparently, between my mother and her twin sister. And around 19 years of age, I was making some money, so I went out and bought a brand new car. Not bad, right? $7,800. Brand new, a Ford Thunderbird. By the way, the downside of this story is that the car actually owned me rather than me owning it, but that's a whole other story that I'll tell you some other time. I picked up my car and I went home, showed to my parents and family and siblings, and then I drove it to my aunt's because she was like a second mother to me and her son and me, we were like brothers and we were like one family rather than two. And I walked in and I said to her, I said, I brought a new car, come and look at it. And she said, no, I don't want to see it. Because she was envious. Because her son, my cousin, he didn't have a new car. Now, it's a bit shocking, isn't it, that story? 
But whatever it does, it reminds us that you and I are really no different. We're no better. We're just more secretive about it. We just mask it better. Now, the illustrations and examples of envy are as varied as all of us in this room. A friend gets married, and we don't. And we've known this friend a long time and perhaps know this person better than anybody else. And the fact that they're getting married and we are not, we start to feel a little resentment. Or, we have a child that is chronically ill. And we look around at other families and we see that their children are never sick. But every week... And we say to ourselves, they're no better than we are. Why don't they have a sick child? Or maybe we're in high school and we're the second string on the sports team. And we've been warming the bench the whole time and the guy that's playing first string is an absolute jerk. He's as arrogant, he's a legend in his own mind. And we wonder to ourselves, why? Here's one. Or suppose a friend of ours, who's a bit of a scoundrel, plays the lottery and wins a million dollars. And we say, and I know we're not supposed to buy lottery tickets, I understand. But I live in the real world too, you know. And we think to ourselves, I deserve that money just as much as he does or she does. Or maybe we're a pastor. And by the way, note, pastors are not exempt from experiencing envy. Pastors look at other pastors, their churches are growing in leaps and bounds, and the church we're pastoring is not growing so fast. And we're envious. That's not fair, God. Or perhaps, perhaps we think that others are better looking than ourselves or they're more fashionable than we are. And we feel envious toward them. There are so many opportunities for envy. Because envy is a Vice of proximity. We tend to envy those who are in our same field, our same gender. Very, I, I never envy women. And I'm sure women never envy me. And I never envy business people because it's not my world. But envy is a, is a vice of proximity. Parents envy other parents. Politicians and the other politicians, athletes, athletes, business people, business people, musicians, musicians, and pastors, pastors. George Steiner said, Malice is created by low fences in the narrow streets where men unceasingly rub shoulders. It is the elixir brewed by close contact. Envy is also deeply personal. Envy is highly subjective. 
It is in the eye of the beholder. What may cause envy for me may be totally different than what causes envy in your life. And what causes envy in your life may be totally different than what brings envy in my life. And by the way, this is not a temptation of youth. This temptation to envy doesn't lessen with age. Matter of fact, sometimes it actually increases with age because we've lived long enough and we've looked around long enough and we've compared long enough that we look around and we think to ourselves, life is just not fair. Why should such and such a person have this or get that or do this or whatever the case may be? And we compare ourselves and the longer we live, the more injustices and unfairness we see and experience. This is the issue that the psalmist addresses in Psalm 73 when he says these words, For I was envious of the arrogant. By the way, notice that everybody else is arrogant other than me. That everybody else is arrogant except for you. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. We want thin and whatever. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Their eyes swell at, uh, sorry. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. We see it in other people. The other thing we need to keep in mind is that envy is incredibly self-destructive. When the envier cannot enjoy, nobody should enjoy. In other words, if I can't have it, neither can you. That's the state of the envier. And Proverbs tells us that envy makes the bones rot. And then envy brings disorder, biblically speaking. It was Cain. It led Cain to kill Abel. It led David to steal Uriah's wife. It led the brothers of Joseph to sell Joseph. And it led the Pharisees to kill Jesus. So what's the answer? What's the corrective? What should we do? How do we respond? What's the antidote? Well, we know why people envy. We know why we envy. There are a number of reasons. Emotional immaturity, ego, insecurity, greed, frustration, discontentment, and failure to love. But the first question is this. Do I envy? Not do you envy, do I envy? And the first question you need to ask is, do I envy? Not your neighbor, not your spouse, not your children, not your parents, do I envy? Is envy a problem with me? Am I an envious person? Well, to answer that question, let's judge your response to these next couple of things. What's your response when our fellow worker gets recognized for his or her hard work by getting a raise or a bonus 
And no one says boo about any of our work. How do we feel? How do we feel when another Christian achieves a higher level of outward success than we do? Perhaps nicer vacations, a bigger home, early retirement, better health. How do you feel? Or watch your response when your friends, when they tell you great news that's happened to them, but it hasn't happened to you. Is it rejoicing? Or is there a tinge of resentment? Is it good for them? Or is it, why didn't that happen to me? You see, envy is an emotion that we all feel. It's from one time to another. Even children. Children who's got a room full of toys... And the other child that's in the room has a toy. The child that has all the toys wants the one toy of that child. We learn early. But if envy is allowed to become dominant in our lives, it will warp our perspectives. It will keep us from realizing our own potential. And ultimately, it could lead to destructive behavior. Now, in case you're not aware, we're not aware of the symptoms of envy in our lives, Vicki Kraft suggests taking this test. And this is what she says. And I don't want you to ask these questions of anybody else, but just of yourself. Would you put them up for me, Aaron, please? Thank you. Do I work extremely hard to come out looking good? Do I examine others with a critical eye? Do I have hidden feelings of inferiority? Do I complain about not getting fair treatment? Do I have an insatiable desire for success? Do I need a lot of recognition for my achievements? Do I tend to be status conscious? Do I find it hard to pay compliments to others? Do I keep score of my own good deeds and those of others? Am I willing to pass along negative rumors about a successful person? Do I put on a false front in order to appear impressive? And do I base my self-image on my performance? And Vicki Kraft says, if we answered yes to some of these questions, then we may be having trouble with envy even though we aren't aware of it. Envy 
can be a controlling force in our lives. It's one of the reasons why the Bible has so many references about envy, because it threatens our joy and our concern for other people. It's also one of the reasons why the Bible has so many references to being content. Timothy says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Hebrews says, be content with what you have. And Philippians says, Paul says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, I know that the Bible tells me to be content. But here's what I find interesting in my own life is this. That it's not like I can wake up every morning and say, well, you know what, today I'm just going to be content. Here's what I've learned. I've learned that contentment is a process. It's not an event. Contentment is a process. Here's the other thing I've learned about my life. I understand and I read the Bible just like you and I know that the Bible tells me to be content, but I find that my contentment leaks. Does yours? My contentment leaks. So here's some suggestions that I have found helpful in my life. The first one is this. Recognize that we are envious. I recognize that I can be envious. And so we need to look at ourselves honestly. Honestly, We need to be honest and we need to identify in our lives what is the source of our envy. And we need to name it. So if, if I'm envious about another pastor, or I'm envious about another guy who's got a really nice set of wheels, or I'm envious about somebody's boat or somebody's motorcycle, which I really couldn't care less about, but that's a whole other thing. But if that's, a, then I need to name it. If it's cash in the bank, I need to name it. If it's financial security, I need to name it. If it's beyond excess. In other words, I need to blow off covering it up. The second thing is this, and this comes from 1 John. We need to confess it to God as a destructive sin and accept forgiveness. They don't call it the green-eyed monster for nothing. And the third thing is stop comparing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, and this is my paraphrase, that when we compare ourselves with ourselves, when we compare ourselves with each other, we are not wise. One translation says we are foolish. Stop comparing your life with somebody else's life. I need to stop comparing where I live with where somebody else lives or with what they've got or I've got. I love what Nick Knoll said. To love is to stop comparing. Here's one. Put your seatbelt on. Husbands, 
Stop comparing your spouse with somebody else's. Wives, stop comparing your husband with somebody else's. Parents, stop comparing your children with the children of other people. Stop comparing. To love is to stop comparing. And the last two are these. Choose, choose. It is a decision. We do have conscious minds. Choose to rejoice in the life situation God has given to other people and, and in the same breath, choose to be okay with the life situation God has given us. Because being envious is not going to change anything. Now, I've been around a while, and I know that what I'm saying is not easy. I get it. Because this is not something that I don't struggle with either. We have to begin to get conscious. The Bible says, wake up, be alert. Envy is not going to evaporate in our lives while we sit by. It takes work. It takes conscious effort. And I want you to know that when you leave here today and you wake up tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, I want you to know that your contentment is going to leak. You got to get back on the wagon. But with all that said, this past week, we came back, I came back to work from two weeks off, and as I said, we had a great time. Early the morning of the first day I was back to work, I got up and uh, I read, was reading, and reading the scriptures, and I read this psalm, Psalm 20. And I thought, what a great way to come back to work and start again. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to listen to it. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send your help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt offerings. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know, the psalmist writes, that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer them from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. 
They collapse and fall. But we rise and stand upright. I want you to open your eyes. And I want you to stand. And be upright. And let me pray for you. Father, thank you again for the living Christ. And because he is alive, we also live. And for the Holy Spirit, who makes possible the application of your word and your truth in our lives. Lord, we are people. We are human beings. We are not super men or super women. We are not super boys or super girls. We're just people. Fallen, broken people. But we belong to you. We belong to one another. And the greatest news of all is that we do not have to do all of this on our own. The Bible says that the same Spirit that brought Jesus from the dead and out of the grave is the same Spirit that is working and operating in my life and in the lives of every single believer in this room and online and around the world. Holy Spirit, Come and help us to be people of integrity, people of honesty, people of truth, and those who are committed to becoming full-fledged followers of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen.